Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. First up, you'll be hearing from noted author Stacey Eldridge, who emphasizes the availability of God's joy, no matter whether times might be good or bad. Then October is National Pregnancy and Infant Loss Awareness Month. Lindsay Dennis and her husband experienced the loss of two babies after she had carried them to term. She relates her perspective on God's faithfulness. And he's someone who loves the Lord and loves to make people laugh. Michael Jr. has a one-night-only theatrical presentation coming up on Thursday, October 18th. Find out more about it coming up. And on this edition of The Intersection, October is Pastor and Staff Appreciation Month, and Frederick Ezeji Okoye of the Men of Faith Network and the Liberty Foundation offers encouragement to pray for pastors. Next, from First Liberty, it's Ken Klukowski sharing insight about matters of religious liberty in the courts, especially in the U.S. Supreme Court, where he has observed a notable trend toward allowing for more expression of faith in the public square. Finally, it's Michael Heiser of the Faith Life Corporation, makers of Logos Bible Software, who offers some insight into the nature and operation of angels. This is The Intersection, a production of The Meeting House, and I'm Bob Crittenden. Stacey Eldridge and her husband John are both popular Christian authors. In her latest book, she offers a look into experiencing the joy of the Lord regardless of the circumstances and seasons of life. The book is entitled Defiant Joy, Taking Hold of Hope, Beauty, and Life in a Hurting World. Now from a recent conversation, this is Stacey Eldridge. Well, I was um, partly really curious because we are exhorted to rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice. And in our days and in the current news feed and what's happening around us or within us, it can seem almost impossible to, to do that. And so I knew that if God said to do it, it must be possible. I know that there's lots of places in the scriptures where he says nothing's possible with God, so I believe him. And I, I actually wrote this book in what was at that point one of the hardest years of my life with the suffering and loss and the death of those that I love. And in the midst of that, um, I, I had to tap deeper into the heart of God, and, and his heart is one of joy. And so that mm-hmm. was where the name Defiance came into the title, Defiant Joy. So there's something God wants us to discover and experience for ourselves, and I don't think it's—well, I do think it's deeper than just, you know, well, grin and bear it, put a smile on your face no matter what might be going on. There's something deeper about God's joy in our life. How could you define it based on on the Bible and what you have seen in your own life? That, well, what you've said is absolutely true. It It is a deeper substance. It it just has to be, and it's one that we're meant to know and experience. And it's, God does not call us to pretend that life is different than it is. Mm. So having joy doesn't mean now live in denial. There's exhortation to possess joy in the here and now. I mean, you, right, you think about Paul and, and, and jail, and he's awaiting his execution, and that's where he writes Philippians, which is, arguably the most joyful book in the Bible. It's 16 times just in that short little book. So there is something that we get to know. If we base our joy or our feelings just on our circumstances, then we go up and down as if we're riding a roller coaster, and it makes us seasick. Now, I love being happy. Who doesn't? But joy is meant to be um, 
something that is solid that we can know at all times. And it requires being tapped into the deeper substance of the heart of God and the truth of reality, which means being rooted in eternity. To have joy, we have to have a perspective like God's that knows that this life we are passing through and that we can be expectant of good at all times. So there's a way to know God and be rooted in his goodness and his fast and immeasurable, always available to us love that we are we are able to know. We get to grow in knowing throughout every day of our life. We have to to recognize the reality of God, which gives us a different viewpoint on the circumstances that we face here in this world. Talk about that reality that we can experience and that we can actually see in God. He's telling us the truth about truth about reality and everything that we look at, which is lovely that he he throws it out to the universe. But sometimes when we look out in the world, it is very ugly. And there's a lot of harm being done. And there is. There's a lot of pain, and it seems to be increasing. And God doesn't say, turn your back on it. Pretend like it doesn't exist. And he doesn't say, blame me for it. He says, invite me into it, that we might bear it together and navigate it together and get my eyes on it. For instance, he looks at suffering and pain differently than we do. And, and when we do invite him into it, when we do wrestle with him on the ground, when it's too much for us to take, um, he, he actually comes. Um, and the, the year that I wrote this book, I was actually in some of the worst physical pain I've known in my life. And I know so many other people who have suffered and who can say at the end of it, crazily enough, that they can actually thank God for it because of what they came to know of his heart in the midst of it. And now they've renamed it sacred pain. Hmm. And part of sacred pain is I, I, I love that because uh, that is reality. We don't, we're not invited to a life without pain. That's not where we're promised, but we are promised that God will meet us in it and be more than enough for us in the midst of it. Stacy Eldridge here on The Intersection. Find out more by going to the website defiantjoy.com. Next up on this edition of the Intersection Podcast, in correlation with National Pregnancy and Infant Loss Awareness Month during October, Lindsay Dennis shared from her story of having given birth to two babies who each only lived a matter of hours after they were born, and how she discovered more about God's love and faithfulness through this season of suffering. She's the author of the book, Buried Dreams, From Devastating Loss to Unimaginable Hope. From that conversation, this is Lindsay Dennis. We knew that. We wanted to carry her to term. Uh, I did not regret carrying Sophie, even though it was so painful. Uh, It was still so joyful to know her and to get to meet her face to face. And so we knew that we would carry her to term. And knowing what that was like now was made it the second time incredibly more painful and difficult because I knew what it was like to say goodbye to a child. Mm-hmm. But our community still rallied around us and came alongside of us in the midst of our grief. It was, um, though we celebrated her life, it was a, it was a much darker experience. This time we had questions for God. We, we didn't understand how, how or why he would ask us to walk through not just the loss of our first daughter, but the loss of our second daughter. And yet we knew that life was valuable and that he had purpose even in her life. Um, and she was born on November 13th of 2014, 
and she lived for 12 hours, and they were a sweet gift to us. Uh, we got to see her personality be different than her big sister, Sophie. Um, she talked the entire time, cooed, and made sound, typically makes, uh, and they were just precious moments with her. And then she passed away, and that for me ushered me into a season where I really wrestled with God in ways that I had never wrestled with him before. I was deeply sad, deeply missing my two daughters, and deeply longing to be a mom. Um, I, I knew I was a mom, but I wanted to actually do the things that moms did. Um, and I didn't get to experience this aspect of parenting that I was so longing for, and then wondering how would our family continue to grow. And that, as I began to learn to wrestle with God, that really brought me to a place of, of seeing his goodness and his love for me in a way that I had never experienced before. And it was really through the darkness that I began to know who God was and his love for me um, in a way that I, I don't think I would have begun to see in any other way. So what did, in the aftermath of these two precious lives, their loss, what did you learn about God what did he show you here in the aftermath? I think one of the biggest things was recognizing that he suffered with me, that the pain that he bore on the cross, um, my pain was really a small taste of the greatest pain that he endured and that he was with me in my pain and sorrow, that he had not turned a deaf ear to me, even though it felt like it at times, that he was absent. It felt like, um, where are you? Do you even see me? Do you even care? I, I kept coming back to the cross. He kept bringing me back to what it means that he died for me and bore my sin and that he is coming back again to restore and redeem and make all things new. I don't think that I had ever longed for the newness that is coming uh, in the new heaven and the new earth um, as much as I did after the loss of my first two daughters. But I really had to wrestle and ask questions about God that I think I knew the church answer to, but had never really opened my Bible and dug deep and said, are you really a good God? Uh, is this what you say in your word? Are you really a, a loving God, a kind God? And I opened my Bible and I just searched for who are you, God? Um, I don't want to just listen to the answers that I hear other people saying. I want to know you rightly. And my experience seems to indicate that you are different than what I think, but perhaps I don't know you as I should. Um, and so I think really diving in and, and choosing to ask those questions and searching out God's word drew me to a place of understanding who he was in a way I had, I had never experienced before, that he is a good and kind and loving God and that he's doing a work that we can't see the fullness of. And I don't know and I, I, I can't understand the why to my questions, um, but I can understand the who. And... God has met me with my questions with himself, really. Lindsay Dennis here on The Intersection. You can find out more by going to the website vaporandmist.com. Next on this edition of The Intersection, it's Christian comedian Michael Jr. He discussed the concept of his one-night-only movie presentation called More Than Funny in theaters on Thursday, October 18th. He discussed his approach and how he injects real-life stories into his comedic material. Here now from that conversation, it's Michael Jr. The reason we call this thing more than funny is because, you know, I've done it to late-night television shows and Comedy Central and Jimmy Kimmel and all of that stuff, but I really feel like 
I'm supposed to do more than just make people laugh. So here, here's what happened. So I was I was performing at a club in Los Angeles, and uh, it's one of the one of the top clubs in the country, really. And right before I got on stage, I had a change in mindset about comedy. This is probably seven, eight years, probably nine years ago. And I felt like instead of trying to get laughs from people, I was supposed to give them an opportunity to laugh, which sounds simple, but it actually changed the whole game, like in a big way. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I go ahead and do my show that night. Then I lead a club and I walk outside and there's people on autographs, high fives, telling their favorite jokes. It's the same thing whenever I lead this club. But this in particular time, I saw a homeless guy outside the club. Now, I had never seen a homeless guy outside this club before, ever. Right. But that doesn't mean he wasn't there before. It's just that I had a change in mindset. So as we started going, so I asked myself, what about him? How could I give him an opportunity to laugh? So then I started to, uh, we, we started up our next tour and I was, and I just had the thought, I should go to some of these homeless shelters and prisons around in this city that I'm in. So we started doing that. We go to homeless shelters and prisons, abuse children's facilities, and we do comedy there before the big show that night. And then one time, I know I know people think, why you do comedy out of prison? It's a captive audience. That's that's what a comedian wants. So hmm. so I go into this place and we're doing these shows and, and I'm doing the show one night, the big show that evening, the ticket of the show was like sold out. And I felt like I was supposed to share one of the stories from this from the homeless shelter. Now, keep in mind I'm asking the question, what can I give to my audience? As opposed to, you know, how can I give them an opportunity to laugh? So that's why that thought process was going on while I'm on stage. So I share one of these stories that aren't funny at all, which doesn't make sense. Why in the world would you share an unfunny story at a comedy show? It don't make sense. So I went on ahead and I shared one of these stories and the audiences, they weren't, the audience wasn't laughing at all. They were froze, but they were completely mm-hmm. uh, attentive. Like they were locked in like completely. So I finished the story up and I can't even tell you what my segue was to get back to the jokes. But we went from probably laugh on a scale of one to ten. At first, we were probably at a seven and a half, and then we dipped down to zero during the story. And then after the story, we probably jumped up to like a twelve. And I realized what was going on was I was allowing myself to be a little vulnerable, but I was sharing something about their community that they really kind of cared about, and it just changed everything. So when it came time to do my comedy special and put it in theaters, like October eighteenth. I decided to do the same thing. So we actually took my camera crew and all of the, um, we took our camera crews to these different locations and we found these three stories that are so powerful and we put them in the middle of the jokes. Like mm. on paper, this shouldn't work. In <laughs> fact, that's what a lot of people in the industry have told me as far as the uh, entertainment industry. There's like, that doesn't work. But when you see it, it's like it's bananas on how it actually works. Because people always say laughter opens up your heart. Well, if I'm going to open up a heart, I'd like to make a deposit. And I think that's what this film does in a really, really big way. And that's why we call it More Than Funny. So on the outside, people hear More Than Funny, and they think, oh, it's going to be extra funny. Well, it is, but it's also more than funny. So it's, it's just a really strategic way to uh, to inspire people to do more. So I'm excited. And the funny, like I said, is the same it's not watered down funny. It's the same type of comedy I've known on Jimmy Kimmel and NBC's Tonight Show and all of these late night TV shows. But there's more, and uh, and everybody can come to the show. Last night at the event that we did, there was an eight year old there who was cracking up laughing in the front, and then you got some retirees like 
It's a it's a range of people who enjoy the show. Michael Jr. here on The Intersection. You can find out more about the film by going to morethanfunnymovie.com. This is The Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House, and you can find out more through meetinghouseonline.info or by going to the programming section at faithradio.org. There at the homepage, you'll find a link to the media center marked Meeting House On Demand, through which you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured on the Intersection podcast. You can also subscribe to the Intersection and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. The Intersection podcast is also available through the Faith Radio app. Learn more about downloading the app through the Faith Radio website. Also through the Meeting House homepage, there are links to two blogs. One is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. The other is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. You can also follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page, and you can get connected to video content. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info or visit the programming section at faithradio.org. In correlation with Pastor and Staff Appreciation Month during October, Frederick Aziji Okoye, founder of the Men of Faith Network and CEO of the Liberty Foundation, discussed principles he relates in his book, Who Prays for the Pastor? Here now is Frederick Aziji Okoye. What do you believe are some of the reasons that, that pastors and church leaders are under such stress today? You know, because of the zeal and the passion of the vision, you know, which usually drives drives us, you know, like we want to really accomplish uh, the will of God. Uh, many a times we lack the balancing. You know, we tend to do everything. And by so doing, we burn ourselves out. And when you are burned out, uh, discouragement starts coming in. You won't think properly. Then the second area I can also mention because of time uh, is the area of being called or being in a profession. You find out that many people just went into school of theology and they took it as a profession. They became a pastor, they became leaders, but they are not truly called. Uh, I strongly believe that when you are called, there is always a grace that will sustain you when there are issues overwhelming you. You will lay back and that grief will sustain you. So a lot of stress is also in the family. You've seen many ministers, you know, twisted the priority because family comes first before the ministry. And you now find out that many pastors do move out, taking ministry as first, which brings stress in the family. And when they come back, there is no peace at home. And this is also one of the reasons why many are being born up in the ministry. Well, the book you've written is entitled, Who Prays for the Pastor? And I understand that you have content contained within the book that's directed to the pastors. There's also content directed to church members. What words of encouragement do you actually include within this book that would help church members, well, 
have a, a greater sense of what those in spiritual authority over them are actually experiencing? You know, many a times uh, the church members, they don't really understand what their pastors are going through. They are more of criticizing their pastor rather than praying for them. So I use the practical examples of actually what happened in my life or the struggles in my life to bring out many of the problems the pastors are going through that the church members don't really know about. So um, that will help them to understand that their leaders are not angels. They are human beings. So when they fall, rather than criticizing them, start praying for them. That was why I mentioned about David. David fall. But the Bible mentioned that he acknowledged his sin and repented. And God still called him a man after my own heart. So I wrote that book. I didn't encourage the pastor to start falling in their sin. But I wrote that book to open the eyes of the congregation that, hey, your pastors are human beings. They can make mistakes, and they can repent of their mistakes, and God can have forgiven them, and we ought to keep praying for them so they can keep moving in faith and doing what God has called them to do. Hmm. Frederick Aziji Okoye here on the Intersection Podcast. You can learn more at LibertyFoundationLLC.com. Next on this edition of the Intersection Podcast, it's Ken Klukowski, Senior Counsel and Director of Strategic Affairs at First Liberty Institute. In a recent conversation, he discussed with me matters of religious liberty, especially regarding Supreme Court action in light of the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh to serve on the high court. Here now from that conversation, this is Ken Klukowski. Just 10 words in the First Amendment regarding Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. Uh, in, in recent decades, okay, uh, the, uh, the, the court has, the Supreme Court has radically reinterpreted what those words mean. Up until uh, the 1960s, give or take, there was something of a sliding scale, but really up, uh, give or take, until the 1960s. That was the Establishment Clause was understood to mean that the government could not adopt an official religion, uh, having the hallmarks of an official religion, meaning that Congress would pass laws settling doctrinal disputes over baptism or over communion, uh, that, uh, that, that the government could not require you to attend church every Sunday, that it could not require you to attend the denomination that the government endorses, that it could not, as part of the tax code, impose a mandatory tithe on you that would go uh, to the government-sponsored church, that the government does not license pastors and preachers, where it could uh, 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 punish those who teach things that contradict the government's church teaching. I mean, John Bunyan, who wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, of course, one of the best-selling books in all of human history, John Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress in prison. He was in prison because he was teaching doctrines about God and about salvation that, were, that contradicted the teaching at the time of the Church of England. Those are the sorts of things that were the historical hallmarks 
of religious establishments, government religious establishments, and really in modern times, because we know that Congress is not going to pass a law regarding baptism, you know, in modern America, uh, where the rubber meets the road in terms of the one aspect of historical establishments that can still arise, potentially, or at least allegedly, is the idea of coercion. So in modern terms, the, the, the original meaning of the Establishment Clause is that the government cannot coerce any American to participate in a religious activity that violates their conscience. So that's the historical meaning. When you get into the 1960s, the Supreme Court spun into a different direction. And in modern terms, they've revised it several times, but for the past several decades, uh, the misinterpretation of the Establishment Clause that has been dominant in the courts, handed down by the highest court, uh, is what's called the endorsement test, that the government is violating the Establishment Clause whenever any government action that touches upon faith would give some reasonable observer the impression that the government was endorsing a religious message. And that misinterpretation of the clause has become a wrecking ball that has been used to mow down countless common expressions of faith and celebrations of faith, whether it's, uh, whether it's prayer uh, at public events or whether it is a, a war memorial that has a cross or a Ten Commandments display or a Christmas display like a nativity scene uh, around the Christmas season. All of those things have been knocked down in one variation or another of this so-called endorsement test. In 2014, the Supreme Court in Town of Greece versus Galloway, as the court swung to the right after Justice Sam Alito took the seat of Sandra Day O'Connor in 06, uh, the, this 2014 case was the first time since 06 that, a, that a, uh, a pure establishment clause case was decided by the Supreme Court, and the court there kind of set aside this whole endorsement concept and instead embraced this history and coercion inquiry. They decided uh, 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 town of Greece the right way. That had to do with opening local government meetings like town or county meetings with an invocation. Uh, and in doing so, the court has now really laid the foundation when it gets its next big establishment clause case to make it clear that this history and coercion standard that it used just four years ago in town of Greece applies in every establishment clause case and gives them the opportunity to throw out this endorsement test, which is also called the lemon test. It's part of the name of the original case where this stuff uh, started coming down decades ago. The court can has an opportunity to set aside this lemon test or its endorsement test variation and really restore the original meaning of the Establishment Clause, and with it, restored decades of lost religious liberty in this country. Ken Klukowski here on The Intersection. The First Liberty website is firstliberty.org. Well, Michael Heiser is scholar-in-residence at Faith Life Corporation, the makers of Logos Bible Software. Recently, he discussed with me some of the biblically-based content he includes in the book, Angels, What the Bible Really Says About God's Heavenly Host. From that conversation, this is Michael Heiser now. This book, um, Angels, is sort of a drill down. You know, Unseen Realm and Supernatural give you the Genesis to Revelation overview, you know, the lay of the land of how the invisible world, the spiritual world, intersects with the human world 
and how that sort of propels the salvation story from Genesis to Revelation. And in this one, we, we just drilled down on one area, specifically the good guys, uh, the loyal members of the heavenly host. When we talk about angels, obviously there's plenty in the Bible about angels themselves, but how would you contrast what the culture has to say about angels with what the Bible actually has to say about them? Yeah, there's. I can divide this into a, a poor understanding and a more poor understanding. <laughs> uh, the, the, the more poor would be the stuff you just mentioned, you know, the the paraphernalia, you know, and, and sort of doing things kind of like new age, you know, doing things, incantations, so that, that's sort of a negative word, but I'll use it, you know, to get angels to do stuff for you. Uh, it, it's, these are myths. And then there are sort of softer myths that, that circulate uh, not only in the wider culture, but even in the church. And so what this is going to sound goofy, but what I'm trying to do in this book is to present a biblical view <laughs> of what the Bible says about angels. In other words, it's text-driven. I'm not, you know, speculating. I'm not, you know, offering sort of, hey, what if this and that? And boy, wouldn't it be neat if this and that? Now, this is a text-driven look at what the, the Scripture actually says about angels. So let's talk about the the function of angels in the world today, especially as it concerns believers in Christ. Yeah, you know, I, the way I break this down is there are angels, again, both in the Old and the New Testament. I mean, there's obviously some overlap here, but there are, there are they enter into decisions with God. We have passages about that. They respond to God's decisions. They carry them out. They bring messages. They praise God. Of course, in the New Testament, we're sort of, you know, some of the more famous passages are like Hebrews 1, where angels are directly called ministering spirits, you know, sent to assist those who believe, you know, believers. And I think that the idea of a guardian angel, you know, sort of a, a, a caretaker angel or angels watching out for believers, I think that is a biblical idea. And in, in the book, you know, I go through the evidence for that. Uh, so, you know, we, we get those. Those are the positive ministries. Of course, angels in the New Testament are also described as ultimately judging unbelievers. Uh, you know, so there, there's a you know, other side to the coin as well. But for the most part, their ministry is directed to messaging, to explaining, you know, things. In Job, you know, one of Job's miserable friends says, you know, when, when Job is lamenting his condition, he says, well, to, to which of the holy ones are you going to appeal? And, and that's the beginning of the guardian angel idea in the Old Testament. The idea was that you had an advocate. Angels were the advocates of humans to take what was going on with you to God and, and, and get some response so that they could relay that to the person and explain why the person is in the circumstances they are. It's interesting that that doesn't, that's not described in the New Testament. I think the reason is kind of obvious, because Jesus becomes the sole mediator and the Holy Spirit. Uh, that wasn't, you know, true in, in the Old Testament. You had other members of the heavenly hosts sort of plead their, you know, the case of, of people suffering uh, in, you know, in, in the presence of God. But it changes once we have the incarnation and the, the arrival and ministry of Jesus. Michael Heiser here on The Intersection. You can find out more by going to DRMSH, that stands for Dr. Michael S. Heiser.com. 
Well, we're nearing the end of this week's edition of the Intersection Podcast, which is a weekly production of The Meeting House. You can find out more through the programming section at faithradio.org or go to meetinghouseonline.info. When you visit that homepage, you'll find a link to the Intersection Podcast. You can subscribe to it and have it delivered to the podcast receiving software of your choice, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. You can also access the Media Center, through which you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests on the Intersection Podcast. You can also follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page, and you can get connected to video content. Two blogs are accessible also. One is The Three, with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room, with devotional thoughts and commentary from the Meeting House program. The Intersection Podcast is also available through the Faith Radio app, You can learn more about downloading it for your smartphone or tablet by visiting the website faithradio.org. Again, the Meeting House homepage can be accessed at meetinghouseonline.info or go to the programming section at faithradio.org. Thanks for joining me for this edition of the Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.